Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? listening to the words and nerds podcast on this podcast we chat about books the writing process and how literature has the power to change the world i'm your host danny v today we're going to chat about a new book published by Fremantle press how to be an author the business of being a writer in australia georgia richter has an ma creative writing from the university of western australia and is an iped accredited editor she has taught creative writing professional writing and editing at the universities of melbourne and western australia as well as curtin university Georgia joined Fremantle Press in 2008 as the fiction, narrative, nonfiction, and poetry publisher. That is a mouthful. Welcome, Georgia. Hi, Danny. I'm very excited to talk about your book. It is absolutely a wealth of knowledge. And what I was surprised about, that it goes from the very beginning of thinking about an idea of triggering inspiration right through to all the stages to you get to the end of public promotions of your published book. So absolute wealth of knowledge. Can you give us a bit more of an in-depth elevator pitch than I just managed then about the book? When we thought about what sort of book we wanted, we thought, we don't really want it to be a book about how to write. We want to let writers know all the other things that they need to do when they're not sitting at their desk writing. And we wanted to do that from the very start of the process to, as you say, post-publication and all the things you need to think about when promoting your work. And it's so important, um, all of that stuff, because there's lots of courses on how to write and the technical aspects of writing. But I thought this was a very practical um, a practical way in, as well as that. And we mentioned this off air as well, but you can dip in and out of the book at any point. So if you're up to perfecting your manuscript and about to submit, you can just sort of flick to that chapter and go, right, what are the really important bits that I have to focus on now? Was that also part of the goal of this book? For sure. I think it's 
we think of the book, so Deb Han is the co-author of the book, and we thought of it as a kind of companion for writers that you have at different stages and at different times. And if you if you take a look at the contents page, then you get an overview and you, you can see what you know you don't know, and you can go to those things as they arise. I think, in fact, rather than reading the whole thing at once and being totally overwhelmed when you're at the beginning, because that may not be necessary to do. Yeah, absolutely. Because I looked at the um, you know, contents page when I first opened the book and I thought, wow, there is so much there. There's a lot of information in my head and that's why I have so many questions for you. So it's great that we can talk. Now, right at the beginning, I love when you talk about inspiration and finding ideas. And you also mentioned great writers of books, you know, that have stood the test of time. You talked about Jane Austen drawing on her inspiration for novel writing. And I love how she says that three or four families in a country village is the very best thing to work on. And you see that in her work. William Wordsworth, inspired by sensory encounters with the natural environment. And Mary Shelley, of course, found the idea for Frankenstein and the tragic death of her own infant child and longing to bring her back to life. And so I think when we talk about triggering creativity, we very often draw upon our own lives and experiences as a starting point. Would you agree with that to an extent? I would to an extent. I think the many of the writers that I work with are really driven because they have a particular story to tell and that may have its genesis in their own life experience and it may not. And it it means always, though, that any book could not be written by someone else because they're channeling a unique series of abilities and experiences into their work. What I find really interesting is last year I uh, we published a memoir by Yuat Alak called Father of the Lost Boys, and, and that's his memoir of his, his father saved 20,000 boys in South Sudan effectively and led them to safety. Uh, now, it's 20 years since all of that happened, but it seems to take about 20 years for someone to arrive in a new place, establish themselves and start to feel safe and then start processing their stories to be able to tell those stories. So there's often a lag in that kind of experience too. So I think it really depends what you're writing and the story that you write may not or the, the story that you have to tell may not surface until decades after it has happened. Mm, that's actually really interesting, particularly about a memoir, because you're very close to it, you're very personal, and yeah, you might need that time to step away from it a bit. And I was also thinking, you know, ideas might also come from not experiences like we just mentioned with, you know, Mary Shelley, etc. They might come from exploring things that you don't want to, that you don't know or that you might want to know about. I think I think the element of the unknown is actually often what can drive someone the, the lovely surprises that you encounter as you're writing, and the the subconscious is an amazing thing, and and I think the human capacity or the human the way the human brain turns events into stories can make it feel almost quite mystical when they you know they take over and and they the shape that forms and the kind of story that emerges may not be the story that the writer sets out to tell. Mm, absolutely now I wanted to talk about writing routine so I have been you know sort of my thing has been I've never been able to finish anything for many reasons because you feel completely inadequate particularly speaking to these brilliant writers all the time but when I did NaNoWriMo uh, last year 
the routine of writing really changed how I approached writing. And I think, you know, you don't go back to it lost. You don't go back thinking it's terrible because you're just trying to finish and write something. This was my experience. So how important do you think it is to create, to have a writing routine that you try very hard to not break and be very protective of that? I think that's what I've done. Instead of saying, oh, it doesn't matter, I'll catch up tomorrow. I've been really protective of that time because that's the only way you kind of get anything done, right? I think NaNoWriMo can help you in discovering that. It's a bit like when you start to get fit and then it feels good so you keep going. <laughs> but the fact that at the start of NaNoWriMo you know it's only a month perhaps makes you able to start out in the first place. I think what's also important is to be really forgiving of your process and to understand that what feels agonising or like you're not making progress at all or that just feels like crap while you're doing it is in fact how it always feels and that thinking if I push through something more happens or or being understanding and forgiving yourself and knowing that that will happen um, is integral to you being able to move forward. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely makes sense. And I think the idea of being forgiving as well, because you're your own worst critic, I think. And if you stayed in your own head, you never write anything or show anyone anything, I think. That's right. And I think it's, it's also, um, it, it's like when you have a baby and then you meet someone who says, well, their baby sleeps through the night and you somehow feel that because yours wakes every three hours, you're deficient. But it's... It's actually nothing to do with you at all. And and I think feeling cowed by how others seem capable and in control of their writing process is the same. Everyone is going to do it differently. And you may, if you're an immensely orderly person who loves a schedule and, and will always write at 5 a.m., then fantastic. But you're if you're a chaotic creative who writes whenever, then that's okay too. And it, it's almost a waste of energy overthinking that or feeling bad about how you're doing it. I like how you mentioned the, um, <laughs> the having the baby. It was like you looked into my mind because my first child never slept and I went to, um, you know, you go to the mother's groups and everyone's baby's sleeping and everyone's so wonderful and glowing. <laughs> yeah. Well, they looked like they were sleeping. I came in like, you know, the cat dragged in saying my son wakes every two hours. Yay for me. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I felt that deep, <laughs> deep inside. I, I think there's not a lot of truth-telling about about how awful you know writing can be in a sense I th- and or, or this sense that really everyone is more capable and I don't think that's right but I, when as an editor I work with authors over time I can actually recognize oh this is the part in your process when you're beating yourself up and you think it's horrible and you don't feel like you're getting anywhere but I know that there is another bit and you will soon encounter that. So it's it's easier to see from the outside than, than from the inside. Really interesting, really interesting, especially from that editor perspective. Now, we talked about not beating yourself up, but I like how you call it a planner or a plunger. Plunger is a, is a word I haven't used before. It's always been pantser, but I like the word plunger. What are the advantages or disadvantages to being a plunger or a planner or just it doesn't matter? I don't think you can't be what you're not. <laughs> yeah. Basically. So so embrace it. It's quite interesting though, I guess, to to and and part of why we talk about those things is that it can actually help you step back and have a look at, at your process and say, oh, maybe that's what I am and what I do. And you might think, 
all right, I'm going to actually try now to be a planner <laughs> or a plunger. If, if you feel that whatever you are is arresting your progress. So it's good to know that there are alternate models. And one of my favourite things about this book is the 18 authors who we talk to and ask questions of about, oh, a whole range of things really, but that included their process. And we did it deliberately so that you could hear writers talking and get a sense that everyone is different. No, I like that. And I saw a lot of friends in the pod from there as well who've been on, Holden Shepherd, one of them. <laughs> now, the importance of building a community really spoke to me. I mean, being part of the literary community, they're such a positive, wonderful, supportive group of people. And I always say this, but a writing community, you know, I'd never really experienced one like I did with Nano of people writing and you're accountable for each other. It's not only that support, it's being accountable, you know, particularly with Nano that every week or every couple of days you need to be at a certain point. And I think, you know, it's really important to have a community of readers or writers or people who love literature. Why do you think building a community is really important? I think that trying it, working working out, see if it works for you is an important thing because some people like the poet Caitlin Mailing in this book say, actually, having people around me isn't that important. Mm-hmm. And that's great, you know, and that's okay too. But I think everything that you described is right for people who, who feel that you're progressing forward together and so there is there is a kind of mutual benefit in taking those steps together. Again, it's like the fitness thing, isn't it? <laughs> if you're in a group, you can feel almost beholden to turn up and then you feel really great afterwards that you have and I think at communities like that and I think it is also very true to say that once you find the people who really get your work then you are going to be with those people for the journey for as long as it takes you know which which could be decades because those people are such important readers and the other thing is that finding people with whom you can click in the other direction who you can give feedback to is of immeasurable benefit to your own work because when you're editing someone else's work that's when you may have epiphanies about your work so it makes you a better self-editor as well as an editor yeah I like that point I like that point a lot and we talk about um in your book readers as an audience and I've always been particularly in interested in genre because I know genres do cross over I mean I'm really interested in crime fiction and I know that crosses over to psychological thriller and horror etc but I'm wondering in terms of reader expectations how far can you or should you sort of go out of those lines that people expect you to stay in in terms of genre I think it's important not to think about those things too soon for starters because I think again you could cripple yourself and to just go with it. And if it feels good and it feels right, then just keep going because you are an, you are your own reader in a sense and a, a member of your audience. And if you're energised and excited by what you're doing, then you can count on it that others will be as well. And I, I think if you know the rules, you can break the rules too. And that some really experienced, really interesting things can happen from that kind of experimentation. But I think also some stories probably just demand a departure <laughs> too. So it's it's actually probably down the track when a manuscript's going to a publishing house um, or when you're thinking, how do I pitch this to a publishing house? If you find you actually can't describe what it is you've done, <laughs> that that might be okay. And 
equally, it might be a sign that you've it's too nebulous and too messy and and you need to think too many hybrids too many hybrids and that actually there isn't going to be a place for it on the shelves but a publisher or an editor may work with you on those those um fuzzy parameters as well but if if a publisher doesn't get it someone you're submitting to it might mean you're submitting it to the wrong place or that you've created something that's actually just going to be really hard to sell. Mm-hmm. And that may not matter. I mean, who cares on one level? But if if reaching an audience is important, there definitely comes a time when you do need to think about those kinds of things. Mm, absolutely. Now, I want to talk about submission because I think sometimes that is the kind of tricky bit, you know, because you're writing and you're not sure if it's good enough and then you submit and then you wait and then you're thinking it's in the slosh pile, what do I do now? Um, so what are your hot tips on submission? Hot tips are when you have taken it absolutely as far as you can and you think it's as good as it can be, that's when it's ready to submit. Back when submissions were in hard copy and not electronic and very few are in hard copy now, you could also give off a certain vibe. If you if you presented your hard copy and it was covered in cat hair and coffee stains, that, that was... <laughs> or glitter glitter you know glitter sends a different kind of a message but but if it had this look of um you know I've uh, I've been dropped in the bath and <laughs> and or pulled out from under the bed you know and I've got a few dust bunnies on me and it, if there's a general vibe that that the author's not really in control of their life that sort of hangs like an aura about the manuscript um, now I've kind of gone off, off top of here, that though. It's thinking, really thinking excitedly about those awful manuscripts. Um, but I think I think everything you do about how you present your manuscript is actually an indication of where you're at with it. So it's the accompanying material too that if you actually understand what genre it is, what books it is like, what parts of your own life are relevant to put in your biography so not that you're a say a knitting champion when it's a book about sailing or whatever whatever it happens to be if you're actually sending a whole set of signals to a publishing house that you know what you're doing and this is this work has been backed in by thought about what it actually is that makes makes an author and and part of what this book intends to do in fact is to give some of those tips you know this shouldn't be a secret <laughs> the, there are there are there are ways of being professional about submitting and we're you know we're very happy to share them and that's why we do share them mm, very grateful for it too now I want to ask you about manuscript assessment because you mentioned that in the book as well about having you know, having other professional eyes on it before you then give it to an agent or a publisher. And then I spoke to um, I spoke to an author, Christian White, about him saying he wished he knew before he was published that it didn't have to be perfect. You can send a manuscript without it being perfect, but then when you're sending it, you feel like it kind of has to be perfect. So where's the balance? I think the balance is at exactly the point of have you taken it as far as you can? And I'm actually not a believer in paid manuscript assessment at all. I think your peers are the ones who can be your intelligent readers and help you get to the point of taking it as far as you can. Or you may, you may 
acknowledge or identify a deficit in yourself and you may go to an assessment, a manuscript assessor for that reason and say, can you look at the dialogue with me or whatever it is that you feel is a deficit. Okay. But the, the, the potential risk of sending it to an assessment agency or an assessor or whatever is they weigh in with their views or they give you their views and you change it according to what they think off it goes to a publishing house and the publisher says, that's great, but, and in fact, identifies all those things that have been added on and which you then have to pull off again. So it's good to think about a manuscript that is accepted by a publisher as being one that is not going to look the same as it will when it appears in 12 months' time because work will surely happen on it and it will go through a process. But what you're presenting will nonetheless absolutely have the core of its potential that is visible to the reader at that end who thinks, oh, yeah, I'd love to work with this because I can see what it can become. Mm -hmm. So it, sh it should be as perfect as you can make it and you should simultaneously feel I've got the energy now to take it through a process mm -hmm. with an editor and won't that be great. And it's really important also when if a publishing house expresses interest and you're talking to a person to get a sense from them that they really get what you're doing and they are, and I hate to say on the same page. <laughs> it's like when I told my dentist that he shouldn't use the phrase bite the bullet. No, definitely. Because I just thought that wasn't cool. But um, I'm not in the mood if, for humour when I'm at the dentist. No. And well, he, I just thought he should think a bit more about the language he used and I was prepared to point that out to him even though he had his hands in my mouth at the time. But um, if you don't feel that the person who is um, saying they'll take on your work actually gets your work, then it's not going to be a process that is the best for you and it's really important to listen to your guts on that one too. So if, if someone's making suggestions for changes that don't make sense to you, then it's it's not going to be right. You make it sound so easy, Georgia. <laughs> this is the thing. The editor sort of loftily sits back and, and makes these declarations, but the the hard work and the hours and the sweat and the tears are the writers. And and I think I think that's why I'm always really conscious when talking to writers um, that something I say could represent weeks and weeks of work. And so I need to think really carefully before I make those statements. <laughs> Which, you know, leads us to rejection, having a thick skin and this being a real part of being a writer, isn't it, and how to deal with rejection in a positive way and feedback as well, taking on feedback positively. Actually, you're right, because I think feedback and re rejection are part of the same thing, aren't they? And And so, again, having a community around you, is a really good learning ground for listening to other people and not mounting a defence about what you've done, but listening, thinking this is a reader and this reader is saying something. But that's also why you need to have trust in the people that you're listening to and have faith in their opinions. But that, that's, the, that's the beginning point of um, talking to another reader or, or receiving feedback about your work and again while we really wanted to emphasize the difference between what you do when you're at your desk and you're writing and you're immersed in your book versus how you can think about it when you've 
got your manuscript and you're out there in the world trying to reach an audience because ultimately if you want to get published that's what you're trying to do is reach other readers um and when it comes to rejection understanding that submitting to a publisher is such a numbers game as your chances are really slight so having low expectations is actually really good and finding um rejections that are a little bit personal they can they can be really sort of invigorating in a way or someone saw it and read it and responded to it even if ultimately they didn't take it I used to love when when I believed I was going to be a writer when I grew up I used to love a good a good personal rejection because I felt seen and I think that's part of what it is you just want to feel seen but um if you know, hundreds or thousands of books are coming into a publisher every year and they're going to publish 20 or 30 or whatever it is. It's going to be a really tiny percentage of what's submitted. They're also submitting books they think they can sell and they're submitting, they're publishing returning authors and so forth. So you're, you're as a first-time author, you're, you're little, your chances of, of getting published are, are small and it's good to know that <laughs> and it's also good therefore not for your writing self to take that personally but for your administrative self to say oh crap there's another rejection on we go what's plan you know f or whatever it happens to be and would you recommend you know you you make your manuscript as good as it can be you take it as far as you can you submit it to agents to publishers to whoever you can think of and then instead of just sitting waiting for the rejection, just throw yourself into another project. Is that what you would recommend? I think you can only throw yourself into something when you're ready, right? So yeah. so if you are, yes. Um, also, I think um, it's not necessary to approach an agent perhaps. So to have a plan to think, do I want an agent and why do I need an agent is a different part of the process than... I'm going to send it out, hold us, bowl us. And I don't mind the idea as a publisher that you would send your manuscript out to multiple publishers mm -hmm. because if you're going to wait 10 weeks or three months or whatever to hear from someone, you don't want that to be consecutive. You want to serve your sentences <laughs> simultaneously. Um, but I think as a new writer, it's actually not a bad plan to first send it to publishers who accept unsolicited manuscripts as in you don't need an agent to submit them. Okay. Um, and then because, because acquiring an agent, waiting for an agent is just the same sort of time-consuming thing and you may not need to do so. Okay. So as a first-time author, you might approach the publishers first before you approach an agent. That might be a, a way. Interesting. From, from my perspective as, as um, a publisher in a a fairly small independent publishing house that is my perspective yeah mm -hmm. someone uh a publisher from a large publishing house might say well you need an agent to cut through yeah you know so it, it can really depend and it also depends i think what your ambitions are and where you see yourself i think where an agent becomes particularly useful is where the admin is so great <laughs> that you actually just wish someone else was managing all your rights and your deals and your paperwork and your so everything else then. <laughs> and you are, yeah and you're and you're um getting on with your writing mm -hmm. but I, I think to 
to see an agent as a necessary step to getting published can be an unnecessary stumbling block. Okay, that's very interesting. Now, I do want to talk about the stages of editing. Now, in your book, you mentioned structural, a line edit, a copy editing, and proofreading. Can you take us through the four different types of editing? I can. Um, it's kind of, so you're, you're going from um, a big overview down to the nitty gritty is basically the sum of it. And this could take place um, over, say, six months or 12 months or however long it takes. And the, the structural edit is the initial edit where the editor will actually be looking at the structure and saying, is everything in its right place? Is there stuff here that's not necessary? Should things be moved around? Um, what if it were told from a different point of view? Or, you know, are there fundamental things that need to change here? So that's structural editing. So then you start to move down a bit further and, and, and start to look at how the content itself hangs together. So again, this is the editor will be providing feedback to the writer and looking in much more detail at, at what's going on line by line. Then with copy editing, you're going even closer in. So there, there is fact-checking and, um, you know, the pulling together of a style sheet for the proofreader and so forth. So, so you're, and, and these, this whole thing can be less clear than it sounds <laughs> because different things can take, take place at different times. But this is the general thrust of it and you become more and more detailed and essentially go from a, a wobbly manuscript to a steady still manuscript and so proofreading at the very end is when uh, someone with fresh eyes is looking at the typeset book and looking for out and out typos and how the work appears visually on the page mm, that's very and yeah but by the end of the editing process so pre-typesetting um there's this point where both the writer and the editor say, oh, it's done. You know, there's a, it's, a kind of, it's amazing. It's sort of a mutual recognition of we've chipped and chiseled and polished and we've, we've dealt with all the big stuff and we've dealt with the little stuff and then we've dealt with the really tiny, niggly stuff and we really now have taken it as far as we possibly can. Mm. And then off it, off it goes the proofreader. And then the proofreader might say, I noticed that each character took their car to the crime scene, but then they drove away in the Hyundai. What happened to the Datsun? <laughs> and you're like, oh, but you need that. that. And how did we all miss that? But that's the fresh eyes um, that the proofreader brings, as well as looking for the typos. Um, but that that that's a really valuable part of it. And we like our... Um, proofreaders to have that sort of copy editing sensibility too so that, that they're a little bit alert to the story as well as as really just looking at how the person in the bookshop is going to see the words on the page. It's a big responsibility though, isn't it? It's awful. I, <laughs> the, the worst, I, I really, the author loves getting their book back from the printer and seeing it for the first time. It's a really emotional, beautiful moment. But for me, 
who I get it first before they do, it's always full of dread because I always think there is going to be a screaming typo on the cover <laughs> or I'll open it at page 264 and I will immediately see the thing that I missed because when off it goes to the printer and then they will send you a, a sort of a dummy copy or die lines yeah. and you have one last chance to look through it in hard copy and you always see something wow. that you missed and you missed 20 times and the pressure is immense. Mm. So, again, editors have to or, or the whoever is doing the production has to exercise a little self-forgiveness too if, if there is an error. Because <laughs> usually, you know, with a with an adult fiction book, you're looking at 90,000 words or something like that. I know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of room in there to hide a little uh, a little error. <laughs> little error, that's it. <laughs> well, I read a lot and I rarely find them, so I don't know if I'm missing them too. <laughs> well, this is the hope that you know people are so swept up in the story that the fact that the word "and" appears twice side by side is just <laughs> the eye just skips it, skips over it. But, but I also love it when people write in and and you know point out an error because then at least at the reprint you can get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. And I think um, there's something about the editor's personality. It's a bit. It's a bit like it's a personality, regardless. So, and or me as an editor, I also derive great satisfaction in checking the kids' hair for lice or whatever. You know, it's, it's uh-huh. like, and I and I love beach cleanups and all that stuff. So I think it's a just a state of mind, really. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. <laughs> I like that's a personality style. <laughs> it is. Now you write, you edit. Why do you write and why do you edit? I actually wouldn't, uh, I was going to say, I wouldn't say I wrote anymore, but I did just write a book. So <laughs> I think um, what I tend to write now is things like blog posts, which are compact and a series of thoughts, you know, so that. Um, what I've been thinking about at the time I can marshal and it's non-fiction and whatever. Back when I actually thought I was going to be a writer, which in a funny way I think of more as writing, um, <laughs> it took a while that I have to say. So the, the authors I'm working with now really have a burning story or something inside them that they need to say and I can so see the difference between what they're doing and what I was trying to do. What I was trying to do looked fabulous but didn't actually have a a real heart to it so I think a book like how to be an author um, the fact that I can write (laughs) means that I could write this book and share what I know but I almost feel like it's something that's simply sharing what I know rather than a book that has been written you see the, the, the difference I'm the distinction there. <laughs> I can, I can, I can. Uh, it is such a wealth of knowledge and it is a book that I'm going to go back and read and I think it's going to be one of those books that sit on your desk and becomes really beautifully dog-eared and it has post-it notes in it and little scribbles by the side and they're your favourite types of books, aren't they, the ones that really get a good use on your desk. So and you, should feel, you should feel free to drop this one in the bath too, you know, it's... Oh, I always go to the bath. I'm the worst for that. Every time I find, you know, 20 minutes, which is very rarely to go and sit in the bath, I'll grab a book. 11 times out of 10, it will drop in the bath. 
<laughs> well, they all have sort of wrinkly bottoms from hovering just above the hot water. <laughs> That's right. I'm like, oh, again? What am I doing? I think I just get so relaxed. It just slips out of my hands. <laughs> yeah. Well, paper and water are not, are not that compatible, but not, whatever. No, especially bubbles as well. They're not friends. Look, thank you so much, Georgia. I learned so much from this book and even more from talking about it with you. So hopefully other listeners, aspiring writers, people who are writers, you know, I think you can always keep learning about your craft. And like I said, the book is a wonderful resource to dip in and out of depending on what stage of writing you're in or maybe you don't know everything about it because it's a new world too because before, you know, social media and the internet, there wasn't all that public private self and trying to create an online community so there are there are new things that we need to keep learning too and I think many of us are still trying to figure out how to work out social media indeed <laughs> it's, it's always like, am I posting too much am I posting too little am I posting the same things like it's always this conversation in your mind and I don't know if anyone well I'm sure people have got it right those you know really good social media people but it is something definitely that we need to consider um with this kind of craft isn't it i think so i think um holden shepherd's really prescriptive approach off in the book offers a model for for how to manage social media but it's such an invaluable tool as well for reaching and growing an audience mm. as well and that's why um it's important to not be cowed by it and to embrace it and to think of it as a tool that is a a way authentically of reaching more people absolutely well look thank you georgia thank you so much for your time and i'm uh i learned so much from reading your book over the last few days so thank you for sharing it oh my pleasure Daniel.